I wonder what your faith rests on. If someone were to ask you, could you give a clear answer to, to them about what Christianity is all about? And where would the cross of Jesus Christ feature in that answer and in your thoughts? We do well to ponder how we might tell someone what our Christianity is all about. Because at the heart of it, of course, is the cross of Christ. As I began this communion season on Tuesday evening at the preparation service, I said we'd be focusing on various mountain experiences, although that term has been used extremely loosely, as I'll comment in a moment. Here are different situations in which Jesus ministered. And at the preparation we looked at how Jesus was transfigured in the vision before those disciples whom he took up with him. And there on the Mount of Transfiguration, what was the very center of that scene? Was the conversation that took place between Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Even as Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven, something of the glory came down. And as that glory descended, so also Elijah and Moses came and communed with Jesus. And they, what was the subject? The subject, as we saw, was his exodus, his departure from the world. Ultimately, the cross of Jesus Christ and all that he would come and have to suffer. And this morning we take up consideration of uh, what we would think of as Mount Calvary. That's where we're looking today from Luke chapter 23. We may have been conditioned uh, to think uh, about uh, the hill with the three crosses on it. And sometimes you'll see a picture and it's depicted as a hill with three crosses on it. Uh, And we often in our mind's eye have that view. However, there is absolutely nothing in Scripture to say that it was on a hill. There's not even any indication it was some sort of little incline or even a small mound. We just don't know. That suggestion has been made to us, but Scripture doesn't speak of it as a a hill or a mountain. It may have been some little rise in the ground, but what we have thought of is so often Mount Calvary, and yet it is not necessarily a hill. But what it is, is the place of Calvary, the place where Christ died, very central to our thinking about our faith and what was needed to be done for sinners. Let me also say that if it had not been, if it had not been for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this crucifixion itself would simply have been another death. It would simply have been another man dying on the cross, on the most terrible of deaths. And there were crucifixions, as we know, even with Jesus. Two others were crucified. But it is his rising, his conquering, and his ascending that gave this a particular emphasis. 
because it was not the crucifixion of some ordinary man. We'll come to see that this morning. So as we think about the Mount uh, or the Calvary experience, we want to be thinking uh, clearly about the death of Jesus, the place where he died, the person who died, the prayer he offered, and the purpose tied to his death. And so we want to begin by thinking a little more about the place of his death. I've already mentioned it's not necessarily a mountain. It was, however, a place where we're told that was probably outside Jerusalem. We read and look how they were going out, and it is most likely they were going outside the city wall. That would be where the Romans would choose the place of crucifixion. Why do we speak of Calvary, Golgotha, or as even in the translations, this place of a skull? Well, Calvary, as is translated in the authorized version, is simply taken from the Latin for the word that means skull. Golgotha is the Hebrew form of that word, and in the Greek it is skull. So all three of those terms can be associated with this place of crucifixion. The Latin, Calvary. The, the Hebrew, Golgotha. And the Greek, skull. And it is thought that it received that name from the strange shape of the rocks uh, around it. Uh, where it is thought that some, they somewhat look like a skull. And of course, uh, some people may look and see that clearly, where others uh, think it's simply a, not like that at all. It's a bit in the eye of the beholder. But that is one of the, the ideas behind the reason why it got such a name. Perhaps another explanation, maybe not as credible, and yet feeding into that is the fact that this was a place of crucifixion. It is probably unlikely that Jesus was the first one with the other two who were crucified at that spot. It was a place where the Romans had set up uh, crosses before. The socket into which the cross was put was likely to have been there. They didn't have to dig a new hole to drop the cross in. And therefore it was a place associated with death. Some suggest that perhaps there were skulls left lying around um, if we're thinking about the Jewish ways, they would have always buried their dead. So that's maybe not as likely. But whatever, that's the place. Place of the skull outside the city. And Matthew tells us that they were going out uh, and uh, going outside the wall. Away from where people would be. It is also likely that it was a place near to a road. They wouldn't want to carry the cross too far. And being near a road, maybe even at an intersection in the road, was of course a thing that the Romans would be happy enough with. They wanted people to see the, crucifi the crucified. They wanted people to see that because it was a visible reminder or deterrent to all who do wickedly. It was making a statement this is the end result when you disobey the Roman law. Crucifixion. 
for the wicked, for those murderers and thieves and others. And so it was to be a statement to deter others. Some suggest it was also near the garden, probably where later he was buried, not too far from it. Of that, we cannot be sure. But what we do know is it was the place of crucifixion. Calvary, Golgotha, place of the skull, brought all the horrors of Roman crucifixion. And that's where Jesus went to die. Not a sanitized prison. Not a place where death would be administered speedily, suddenly, painlessly and quickly. No. The place of crucifixion was a place associated with death. The death with agonizing pain. Slowly, but certainly. Even though it was agonizingly slow, the torture of crucifixion certainly would bring death. Imagine, and we maybe don't want to imagine, but imagine the nails. Rough, rusty nails perhaps even. Hammered through the flesh of your hands and your feet. And then that cross, onto, that wooden structure onto which you have been kneeled is lifted up and dropped into the socket. And as it drops, every bone is jarred. The ligaments as you hang there in your body will be torn and ripped. It is a place of tremendous suffering. And even as you hang there with your life ebbing away, you're almost suffocated. Can you imagine your whole torso and it all going, gravity pulling it down. You can hardly get a breath. It is gruesome. It is ugly. It is horrible. That's the place where Jesus went to die. And we must see that it was truly grueling and painful and terrible. And the agony of the body was one thing. We shouldn't ignore also the mental torture of knowing that that was what was coming. As Jesus went towards the cross, first carrying his own cross, and then because of his weakness, uh, Joseph being forced to carry it for him, that was a thought that he knew, he knew what was coming. And add to that the stigma of being displayed, probably naked, into the passing public as a rebellious criminal with the murderers. The place of agony. He went to this place. He gave himself to it as the Son of God. The Son of Man. And he did it that he might bear the wrath of God in his body that you and I might be free. He went to this place and the blood trickled down his, his head as the crown of thorns was bursting his veins. That his whole body and all the pressures he bore it for you and for me. Here God the Father who has loved you gave his Son to be under this great curse of the cross and under his wrath that you and I might be forgiven. 
Jesus did not have to do, go there because he was a criminal. He wasn't. But he suffered and he died because of God's love for sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So the first thing is it is a place of death, a place of suffering. Secondly, let us notice the person who died. This place of crucifixion, let me remind you, is a place where criminals would die. The Romans would crucify those who had been rebellious, those who were perhaps uh, terrorists of the day, those who were murderers and thieves. They were a thoroughly bad group of people who would be crucified. Not an upright citizen. Not people who had merely made a slight mistake, but the truly wicked of the day. And of course it reminds us of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ was there. And who was he? Who was this person who died? Was he a criminal? As he was cruelly put to death, he was no vagabond. You need to remind yourselves that he who was crucified had walked in the life of compassion. His ministry was one of care. He exposed the heartless religion of the Jews, of the leadership. That's why he cut across the Pharisees and the teachers. It wasn't that he disagreed with all that they taught. He disagreed with their heartless religion that was all a form and nothing of the soul. They were a picture of Israel, of the Old Testament. They went through all the outward motions but had no love for God. And the Pharisees had formed such a religion around themselves. That's exactly what they were. And when Jesus came with a heart religion and was speaking to them about living for God, that's why they hated him. He showed them up to be a people who had no true religion, no true faith in their Lord. He healed the sick. He brought the dead back to life. He gave them back to their loved ones in His compassion. He took ordinary people with all their faults and flaws and called them to a way of righteousness and repentance. He didn't rise in Uh, against the authorities of Roman rebellion. In fact, he told the people to pay tribute to Caesar where that was due, but also to God where that was due. Here's the one, a righteous and perfect one who was crucified, suffering all the agonies of sin. There the one who had lived that most righteous of lives was among the the faithless, wicked murderers of his day. His love and obedience, his compassion and grace shone out during his ministry. And yet, man cruelly crucified him. So we not only think of 
Calvary is the place of horrifying death. But we think of the person who died as the one who least deserved such a death. If anything, he should have been exalted and applauded. Here is the God-man. Here is God the Son giving himself to the way of the cross for you and me. And so we have the place and the person. But as we think of him, how did he react? Even as he hung on the cross, we need to note the prayer that he offered. What was it that he spoke on the cross in that place of persecution? Let me ask you this. How would you have reacted? Imagine yourself innocent and thrown into jail and maybe tortured there. What would your reaction be? I know how I would react. I would probably, my thoughts would be, get me out of here. I'm innocent. What are you doing? You would do everything to give off and protest. And you would have many thoughts against your users. You would want them to be put in prison. The last thing on your mind, in my mind, would probably be to want them who were guilty of putting an innocent person in prison to get off free. We might like our revenge. That's how we as human beings might want to react. But what does Jesus do as he hung on the cross? He prays. And he prays for those who have persecuted and put him there. Verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided his clothes by casting lots. Who was it Jesus was praying for? As he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. They think there are three main groups we can speak of that he was praying for. Who was he praying for? Well, he was praying, first of all, for the Jews, for those who had cried out, crucify him. And he was praying, secondly, for the Romans, the Roman soldiers, the instruments of his crucifixion, because the Jews could not crucify him. That had to be the Romans. And thirdly, I believe he was praying for you and for me. Let me just think about those three areas for a moment. The Jewish people had cried out for him to be crucified. The scribes or the Pharisees and teachers of the law had whipped the Jews up into a frenzy, remember. And the very ones that had applauded him and called upon him as he rode into Jerusalem became the same people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They did not know what they were doing because they did not recognize this, the Messiah who was to come. They didn't see in Jesus the one whom God had sent because the teachers were helpless, were hopeless in helping them to understand that because they denied it. Jesus prays for those ordinary people who stood around the cross baying for his blood. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But then he prays also for the Romans. The Romans also didn't know what they were doing. To them, this was just 
another death. Many of these soldiers were probably quite hardened to death. They had seen crucifixion before. Nothing new in this. It was just putting to death another criminal in their view. They had no understanding and could have had no way of understanding that this was the Messiah God had promised to the Jews. Jesus, no doubt, was thinking about those men who had hammered the nails and raised the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. They had no idea that this was the very Messiah and hope for their lives, that they were crucifying. But can it not be said also that he was praying for you and me? Because every one of us as sinners is guilty of putting Christ on the cross. Because of our sin, he had to suffer and die that we might know God. And it is we think about him who suffered and died. That was why he suffered. And that's for us that he prayed. And as we take the outward symbols of Christ's suffering and death, we need to deeply, be deeply conscious that it was my son. You know, that's the problem with many sinners today. Outside of Christ, they have no understanding of what they're doing. Denying Jesus, rejecting the truth, they don't realize that this is the only hope. Satan has their lives, their minds blinded, and they're without hope, and they're looking to all kinds of other things in the world for eternal life and for better life. Because they cannot see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's where I was before I came to faith. And that's where you were before you came to faith in Jesus. Blind and not understanding. And if you understand today, then rejoice that he has given you hope. Fourthly and this part, we want to think of the purpose of his death. And we know that well. Why did Jesus die? And that's something we could ask. Why did Jesus have to die? What was the purpose behind it? Why did such a man who healed the sick, who brought the dead back to life, who was put in the place of a criminal with all the cruelty of crucifixion, why did Jesus suffer and die? Yet there are others who gave him nothing but mockery. And yet there were those around that cross who were saying, Why, God, why? Those who mocked him said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. That was the attitude of some of the Jewish leaders. If he is the Chosen One, then let him save himself. And so they mocked him. But their very mockery held something of the truth. He could not save you and save himself. If Jesus had come down from the cross and saved himself, there would have been no salvation. He could not save himself because he could not disobey the work that the Father had given him to do. For his very purpose was to save many through his death. If he had avoided the cross, there would have been no hope for you or for me. And so they 
criticized him and showed his purpose that he had to be the one who suffered for sinners. But then the soldiers also mocked him, but their words are slightly different. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But Jesus was the king of the Jews, but his kingship was not of this this world. You see, the Roman soldier who mocked him in that way thought, well, if you're the king, come down, raise an army, get your people behind you, take over the land, and rule in the world as it is. But Jesus could not come down from the cross and rule because his kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. And if he was to be the king, he had to bear the sin of many and suffer. And so Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, has today the power over all the nations. Not in a temporal, transitory world in which we live, but in the eternal, spiritual world. His kingdom is great. And the impact of his kingship is felt around the globe. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and they will know him as king. It doesn't matter their ethnic origin, and it doesn't matter where we made of borders in this world. Uh, there is no border for the King of Jesus. His rules over all. So as we come today to remember the suffering and dying of the Saviour, let us be ready to recognize that he suffered the cruelty for the very purpose that he would be the Messiah and Savior of all, for the purpose that he would be King and Lord and give us, bring us to forgiveness, bearing in his, our, his, our sin in his own body, the very thing that we couldn't do for ourselves. So he was obedient to death and to the cross. He did suffer and die that we might look to him. Amen.